Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to The Keys 107, opening the doors to endless possibilities in the pursuit of love, peace, and happiness with your host, Rafika and Brother James. The Keys 107 will be right back. The Keys 107 presents the Healthy Tip of the Day. The Healthy Tip of the Day is to rest when you feel tired. How many times have you went for coffee or energy drinks to give yourself a boost when feeling tired? The best way to battle fatigue is to surrender and rest. Sometimes a power nap of 20 to 30 minutes is all you need to re-energize. If you find that you're still feeling tired after a power nap, consider getting more rest at night. Getting adequate rest is just as important as good nutrition and exercise for a healthy lifestyle. You'll feel more alert, focused, and get more done in less time when you allow yourself to rest when you feel tired. Today's healthy tip of the day has been brought to you by Organic Soul Chef, Medea Allen. For more healthy lifestyle tips, sign up for my newsletter at OrganicSoulChef.com. We are back. We had to get that out the way, but it's for each and every day. But listen, today we're hoping that we can touch the hearts and minds of those who listen to us today and and draw from an experience that most of us will never, ever have. But yet, even though as extreme as it was, as, as traumatic as it was, I think there's some life lessons in it. Now, our special guest... Sister Mildred D. Muhammad, who is an author. She has wrote, written several books. She has been doing some uh, speaking, you know, speaking out against domestic violence as a consultant um, with the Office of Victim Crime. She's been on CNN as a contributor. She's a domestic abuse survivor, of course, a humanitarian, and she's a certain domestic violence advocate. I want everyone in the listening audience to welcome uh, Mildred uh, D. Muhammad on the live. Mildred is live. Yes, sir. How are you today? I am fine. The question is, how are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you for asking, sir. And thank you for this opportunity to share information with your audience. Well, it is indeed our honor and our, our pleasure to have you on because after hearing the story from 
from the news media and the sources that have given us the information some many years ago, and I think it's about 15 years ago. Am I correct? Um, yes, sir. The events took place, and I'm quite sure you're still living some of that daily, uh, but we'll get into that. We've never really heard from the inside perspective, uh, the only perspective that we can get that is unique and genuine, such as yours. So I want to not take you through every um, every moment of that trauma, but I want to paint the lifestyle that you were living prior to this uh, traumatic event took place back in 2002. Talk to us about family life, uh, how you got together with John, uh, and just what was life like before the trauma. Well, John and I met when we were in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and we um, met at a convenience store. A friend of mine introduced us, and we started dating, and eventually we got married. Went into, He went into the, the military, um, 84th Combat Engineer. We began, we settled in uh, Fort Lewis in Washington State. He was, his unit was to go to Desert Storm, um, and that was in um, Saudi Arabia. So that was in 1990. We had already had one child. When he was stationed in Desert Storm, he was there for three months. Um, But when he came back, he wasn't the same person. Before he went, he was jovial. He was the life of the party. Everybody wanted to be around him. But when he came back, he was distant. He no longer wanted to have those conversations we used to have. He didn't want anybody to know what was going on inside of his head. He was diagnosed with PTSD, and he was not debriefed. So as we were going along, I noticed that he would sit in the corner, rocking back and forth. I would ask him what's wrong, and he would just say nothing. But his behavior was not the same. He he became um, emotionally abusive. He did not physically assault me. His abuse was mental, psychological, stalking, economic, spiritual. Mm-hmm. All of the right. abuses that you can't see. And what most right. people don't consider to be abuse unless there's a physical assault. 80% of victims do not have physical scars to prove that they're victims. So you could be sitting right next to someone at work or when you're out in your place of worship, and it's very important that when someone comes to you that you keep an open mind and you listen to them and don't necessarily take the side of the abuser just because you feel that you know them. No one knows anyone unless you live with them. And when someone comes to you with that, then just be cautious of how you treat that person coming to you for help because a victim could be men or women. And it's, it's true, really but I want, an epidemic at this point. Right. I want to stop for a second and just go back. You said in 1990 he went in, well, in the military and he went to Desert Storm. He was just there three, three months, 90 days. Right. Those 90 days, those three months was enough 
have an effect on him that changed the whole dynamics of your relationship and the world as you knew it. I want to say to you, was it such a um, blatant thing where you could, I mean, you said you've seen some signs. Now talk to the audience and say, sometimes we don't realize, especially with going into the military, that our mindset can be altered. But you're saying that it was so serious and so severe, but didn't attention from the military. What did you do when you seen these signs, and how did you try to get uh, support or help for your husband at this point? Well, I would ask him, did he want to talk about it? Um, is there anything that I can do to help you? And he would say no, because he didn't want anybody to know what was going on with him. And in the military, if you have a stain on your record, then you will not be promoted. So going to a chaplain or talking to someone that could really help him outside of him to him appear that I was going behind his back. So I had to, to work within the parameters that I had, which was to just talk to him, try to get him to seek out help. And then at that time, PTSD was not um, very well known about. So there Mm -hmm. were not a lot of resources that you could tap into privately or publicly to get help. Right, right, right. Now, prior to him going away in the military, how how long were you together? How long did you took to get to know each other? We were together for about, met in 80s, we were married in 88, so about a couple mm-hmm. of years, and then he went into the military in 1990, mm-hmm. um, to Desert Storm in 1990. So you, came what back I'm just... Three years. Hello? Well, what I'm... Yeah, I'm sorry. I think we, um, we're we going in and out, but I think that's just uh, because the technology sometimes fails us, but... I would say to you that the reason why I was asking that question is see how well did you get to know him prior to the, uh, uh, you know, him going away to the military? Because it seems as if after that you spent 10 years with him before he showed uh, severe, really severe signs that there was something definitely wrong. Uh, I just wanted to, uh, you know, clarify that you had time to really get to know him prior to Right. Right. Okay. Now, the question that most folks want to know is, when all this was going on, leading not leading up to the time that he actually began to um, do, out, do outward violence, was there a gradual state in time in terms of his treatment or mistreatment of you and, and perhaps your children? There was a gradual progression. Um, but it wasn't anything that stood out. John didn't yell. He didn't do all of the typical things that you would expect an abuser to do. That's why it was difficult to to see. His, when he was angry, he just became very polite. And the way that he did it was very degrading. Um, he would, um, I would buy dishes, for example, a whole set. 
he would break them all except for one bowl, one saucer, one plate. He would throw away all of the the silverware to one knife, one spoon, one two two knives. I'm sorry, two spoons, two forks. But it was just me and him, and then I was son. And every time I asked him what happened to all of the dishes, he said, "Oh, they just broke." So every time I bought a new set, then it would end up like that. I would see clothes my clothes, things that I really expressed a desire that I really enjoyed, they were either cut up or thrown away. And when I asked him about it, he would say that little John did it and he was like two or three years old. So as as time is going on, having children, we moved from Germany to Fort Ord and then from Fort Ord back to Fort Lewis, um, he had decided to get out of the military. But once he got out of the military, we started our own business. And it is within that our own business that things really started to get worse. <clears throat> because now he's he's taking money, and I don't know where it's going. We have our own business. It's a mobile auto repair service. So we have more female customers than we do male customers, and these female customers have children. So he wanted to be the surrogate father for the children because their fathers were not around. Then I began to hear reports about him going over to the women houses outside of business hours. And so it just started to progress in that manner. He wouldn't bring home money. He would try to make me feel that um, I'm not the mother that I'm supposed to be or I'm not keeping the house clean and things like this. So I am doing that. I know how to do that, but it's just he's telling everybody else that this is the things that he's going through. So or would you say that he was rather convincing? He was very convincing. He... And because he was in the community and I was not, then people automatically took his side. They didn't know me. I stayed home. I, we had a, we had our own business, but we worked from the home. Right. Eventually we got a shop, and they still only saw me a little bit, but he was the mechanic. So he was out in the community. He was meeting people. He had the charismatic um attitude, everybody loved him. So to say anything negative about him would appear that I'm just jealous or I'm emotional or why would you say something bad about him? And then that is a problem too, because if someone is very well known, they the people only know what you show them. So if he's showing them that he's this jovial guy, he's out there in the community helping everybody, then someone comes to say something bad about him, then nobody's going to believe it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So now this was going on for about three years of you enduring uh, this emotional uh, abuse and um, trying to figure out how to maintain your own self-esteem because I take it that uh, if you're home and you're not getting out, he was pretty much the person that you uh, interacted with all the time. And so you were taking right. it quite often. Did you talk to mm-hmm. your parents or your sisters or your brothers or, you know, family members or friends about how you were feeling um, 
as in regards to the relationship and the direction it was going? Well, yes, I did, to give you the quick answer. And there's a a method that we call the touch test. And in Mm -hmm. the touch test, I will go to my family and friends and those who I felt would help me and just have a basic question or make a basic statement like, you know, John, he's not, he's not treating me well. He's, he's talking to me. He's making me feel bad. He's not bringing money home. You know, utilities are not being paid and things like that. And I said, well, well, why would you say something like that about John? He wouldn't do anything like that. Not talking to you again. Cause you're going to go back and tell John. Mm-hmm. And now my my life is is in jeopardy because yes. I spoke out. Yes. And you're not you're you're already demonstrating where your loyalty is. So why would I put myself out there any further and knowing he's going to come back and get mm. and hurt me? Right. So, right. yes, I did tell, but the but the, they weren't listening. They weren't favorable to me. Mm-hmm. They were of defensive of John. Right. And when you talk with Which John. Which left he... me feeling isolated and mm-hmm. not having anybody to talk to but my children. You can't talk right. to your children about what's going on when they're so young. Right, right. Now, when you talk with John, say, John, and listen, something's going on with us. What, what's, what's the issue? Do we need to have counseling or something? Have you, did you approach him in those type of ways in terms of, Hey, we got a problem. It looks like we have a problem here. So can we talk about it uh, with someone else? Mm-hmm. What, what, did you try yeah, that? I did that. I sure did. And he said, well, it's just a point of mind over matter. I said, what does that mean? He said, well, I don't mind because you don't matter. Mm. So we don't need to talk to anybody. We're fine. And if you talk to anybody, just know that I will fix it to where nobody will ever listen or believe anything you have to say ever. So you remember that. And he was true to his word. Now, with all that was going on in John, um, have you ever seen him sort of um, have outbursts of emotions which were not anger, but out of uh, fear, resentment, anything like that, that might kind of describe his uh, activities or his experiences while he was over there in, um, in Saudi Arabia? No. No. John was very strategic in how he displayed himself. He would go, he would stand in the mirror and would uh, practice his facial expression so that no one would know what he, what he was feeling. So if he, if he was angry, he would go in the mirror and look at it and change his facial expression to where there would be nothing. So he could actually be angry and keep the same face. And you never know. He could walk in the room and read it and know exactly what to do to get an emotion out of you while he maintained his composure. He practiced that. He would go outside and before dawn and measure how fast the dew would dry on the grass before the sun came up. He was like that. So he was a highly intelligent. So he was man. very strategic, highly intelligent, very strategic, was very 
um, careful and calculating in how he would do what he needed to do. His his thing was when you have a plan, you have to have a plan A, B, C, and D. And when D doesn't work, you go right back to A. So he always well, he had lost. a plan, always knew exactly what he was going to do, how he was going to do it, and he did not voice anything because, as he said, you never let your enemy know when you're going to attack. Mm-hmm. Was he like that prior to going into the military, or was this something that he got in in the military itself? He got this in the military. Mm-hmm. And he was, when he, came- he was a he was an 84 combat engineer. He was an mm-hmm. expert shot. He was a hand to hand combat expert. He was a demolition expert. He was um, um, some would consider him to be um, a sniper. So right. That's the type of training that he had. He had training in air assault school, so he was very well skilled, and he he took his his career seriously. Did he bring it home? Was it a military operation? No. Meaning he didn't. Okay. We'll just want to see if he knew how to turn it on and off. And also He knew how to said, turn it on and off, and mm-hmm. he knew when, when to display it and when not to. Mm-hmm. And how did he treat the, the children? Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. He was a great dad. And everyone He played seen with that. them. He came home from, yes, came home from work. First thing he'd do is go take a shower and then play with the children. Play, wrestle, uh, go outside to the park. Took them to the museums. Very, we were very cultured with them. Um, all of that, mm. all of that on the outside, but on the at home, it was a different story. Mm. Now, when you say at home, it was a different story. When you, which you know, like you said, you, he created a good environment for the children. But when it came to you, he mm-hmm. was beating down your self-esteem. Right. right. I would clean up the house. Before I leave, I come back to houses tore up. So what, what happened? Well, the children always blamed the children for messing up the house. But the way that it was, it wasn't. He did it. I would wash clothes and fold them up. He would take the clothes out of the drawers and throw them all over the house. What do you do with that? So he was displaying. So constantly not, not uh, wanting me to have any peace. I had to constantly work to make sure everything was clean because I like to clean house, and he knew that, but he didn't want to to help. And did you know that you, when did you know that you was in trouble? You're like, this is not healthy for me. Um, I asked him in 1999, August. When we were going, we had finally, he took me seriously when I told him I, we need to go to counseling. So we, he, we went to one of our friends, so-called friends, and um, she asked John what was going on. He said, well, I'm not, just not sure if this is what I want. So he moved out, which was fine, but he wouldn't tell me where he was or He'd show up like the hero. My, our son has asthma. He hid his machine. He was the having nebulizer. an asthma attack. The nebulizer, thank you. And he was having an asthma attack. 
and I couldn't find the machine because I always put it in one particular place so I know where to get it. And I was, at that time, we didn't have cell phones like we do now. We had pagers. So I'm blowing up his pager. He finally calls back, and I say, where's the nebulizer? Because John is having an asthma attack. He comes over. He goes to the closet. It's at the very top behind several blankets in a box. I said, why would you put it there? I would have never, he could have died. And he said, well, I'm here now, so don't worry about it. Just things like that. And so put him on the machine, fine now, he leaves. So I brought that up in counseling. She asked him, why did he do that? He said, well, I, I wanted to feel like the hero. I say, at the, at the cost of your son's life, you want to be a hero? I mean, do you have to do that? So he said he wanted to come home. I want to try it again. So he came home that weekend in, in August, and we sat down, talked to the children. He said, we're going to make this work. It's gonna, we're going to um, be a family again, and Mommy and Daddy are going to be together. And so that whole weekend, Friday through Sunday, we were together. Monday night was the counseling session. Went to counseling, and he said, I don't know if I want to do this. I was so angry. I was I was so angry because he lied, not just to me, but he lied to our children. And I said, you only did this to see if you could pull me. I said, but I'm, I'm done. I'm done. Get your stuff and you can leave. You don't ever have to come back again because we're done. There's nothing you can say or do that would make me come back to you because we're done. And so at that point, he still had a key to the house. So he would come in in the middle of the night. I would hear the key going into the door, and I'm in the back room. Come in, I would see the silhouette of him. I'd lay down, my spirit said, be still, and I would open my eye to a slither, watch him walk in, walk from one side of the bed to the other, lean over, listen to me breathe, stand up, and leave out of the house. He did that three times. The third time, my daughter Taliba woke up and said, Daddy, and he's picks her up and said, he, here's Taliba, like he's supposed to be there. So the next morning I called a locksmith to have the locks change. Children are used as pawns in mm-hmm. an abusive relationship or in a divorce to find out what's going on in the house because the other parent is no longer there. So right. he comes over to visit and he says to my son, so what's going on? He says, daddy, mommy's going to get the locks changed. So he says to me, why are you getting the locks changed? I said, because the, I just made up something. I said, well, something's wrong with my key. I can't get it in and out all the time. He said, you know, there is a problem with the lock. So we go to the front door because he, he says, let me show you. You go to the front door. He takes his key. He said, look, see, my key won't go in the lock. Let me try your key. He takes my key, try to put it in the lock, and it still won't go in. He says, so I'm going to take this off and go get a lock and bring it right back. Well, as he was taking the the lock off, turned it, and a straight pin fell out. He put a pin in the lock so a key couldn't go in. He didn't come back with a new lock. So I had to get a chair, prop it up under the door for three nights until the locksmith came to secure the house. One of those 
um, night, he, I was sitting in the dark, and he came in the door, and I raised up. I said, why are you here? He said, oh, uh, I just came in to check on y'all, and then he left out. So that was very um, scary to see yes. him do that. Mm-hmm. Well, as you're talking, you know, I, I have to say this, you know, and my wife is not here, Rafika, but she watches from time to time um, a movie channel called Lifetime. And every so often they have somewhat of a scary movie. It's always a plot. And it, what you're talking about right here is something that most of us have never experienced, but we can visualize every single word. And it is scary to know that someone can enter your home multiple times. You really don't know what their motive is. And they're able to uh, manipulate you and your family in such a way that you know this is not going to be a a good result when we do finally cease this uh, relationship. So talk to me about the level of fear that was that you encountered at this time, you knew you had to break away, but you didn't know what it would take at this point. Right. Well, when we were getting ready to, I was already scared anyway. And with the locks being changed and him changing my phone number without my permission and, trying to get people to believe me was the hardest thing in the world. Um, we, I had to call the police because he tried to come into the house without permission. When the police got there, he was already gone. They asked me, did I have a restraining order? And I told them I didn't. So they gave me the paperwork to file for a restraining order. I went to the courthouse looking at a sheet of paper with 10 questions and I'm trying to ask myself after 12 years of marriage and three children of business, how am I in a courthouse filing a restraining order on a man yes. that says he loves me? Right. But I filled it out and then the judge said to me and when he read my petition he said, you, you really need to get away from this guy. I said, your honor, I'm really trying to do that. He gave me a lifetime restraining order. I don't know if they even give those out anymore, but we still had to have visitation with our children. So yes. he came over. He said, we need to talk. My brother was at home, and I said, okay, fine. We go in the garage. He says, you know, you're not going to raise my children by yourself. You have become my enemy, and as my enemy, I will kill you. I didn't want to appear to be afraid of which I was very afraid. And I said, well, I've been sleeping with the enemy all this time. What else are you going to do? He started to charge at me. I ran to my brother. He left. I told my brother, John is going to kill me. He's going to kill me. He said, John, I can kill you. He's just playing. I didn't go to my brother anymore. And that's what happens. Because if I'm coming to you for help and you're minimizing my fear, then you don't understand me. Therefore, I'm wasting my time talking to you. I need to get to somebody who will believe me and will help me out of the situation. So we had to get someone to come and pick up the children from me and take them to him. 
The first weekend went great. The second weekend was my mother's, and we wanted, she wanted to go to Country Buffet, so I told him that he needed to have the children back Sunday at 5.30 so we can go to Country Buffet. The guy picked them up on Friday. Sunday came, no children. They didn't come back. He took them for 18 months out of the country. The very people that I went to for help, told them what was going on. They said, why are you saying all those bad things about John? You know, at least you just get to cook for one. You're young. You'll have more children. At least they're with their father. Snap out of it. Get back to work. Stop Mm. saying all those things about him. Nobody helped me to find my children. That's when the Internet first started coming on the scene. Mm. And I signed into this online place called blackvoices.com. And I watched it for a few days. And then I went into this chat room and started talking about what was going on with me. And lo and behold, there were advocates and attorneys and, and they were telling me what to do and it's going to be all right. And just, I, I was following their directions. They became my friends. I didn't talk to anybody else. They told me not to talk to people because somebody is is um, not helping me. And come to find out, the very people that was coming to check on me were the ones that were going back telling John what I was doing. So I had to cut off all communication to everybody that I knew. Let me ask you, this is in the state of Virginia, is it? Or was you in Maryland? What, what? Washington State. Well, Washington State, okay, gotcha. Mhm. Mm-hmm. Wow, this is heavy. So now you are talking with people who have a genuine concern that has a level of competency in terms of domestic uh, violence and advocacy that they have. So they kind of giving you some direction. But those eighteen right. months. Talk to us about those eighteen months of missing your children. Mm-hmm. What was going on? That's a pain I can't, that's a pain I cannot, I don't even know how to articulate that. I mean, Jeanette, you, uh, your son was was at a concert. Just imagine that you, you won't see him anymore mm-hmm. for 18 months. Every night you lay your head to a pillow trying to figure out where they are. And the very people that can help you to find them and and they know where they are won't tell you. They're watching you suffer and they know where your children are and won't tell you. At that point, he had, when he took the children, he emptied the bank accounts. He called the landlord and told him that I would, that he would no longer be paying the rent. So I got evicted. My sister from Maryland came and picked up my mom because my mom was living with us and brought her back to Maryland. And I went to live in a shelter because they told me that they needed, I had, I was eating a half a slice of bread and crushed ice and I passed out. He took me to the hospital, told me that I had lost three units of blood and I needed to have a blood transfusion. So while I was in the hospital, he called. And he said, um, how you doing? I said, I'm good. He said, how's mom? I said, she's fine. I said, why won't you let the children call me? He said, we don't always get what we want, do we? See, there's a dialogue that happens between the victim and the 
abuser that only those two people understand. He already told me, you have become my enemy, and as my enemy, I will kill you. So I had two choices. I could go back to him and die, or I can hang up the phone and never see my children again. And I hung Mm -hmm. up the phone. Then Mm -hmm. I let out a scream. The nurses came. I asked them, could they trace the call? They traced the call to a woman who called the hospital for John. My mother called shortly thereafter and said that John was on his way to the hospital to kill her daughter. So they took me out of one room, put me in another, took my name off of the register, posted a guard outside my door, stating that anybody that was coming to see me needed to send up their ID so that I could identify if it was John or not. A social worker came in and said that you can't go back home, but I need for you to do three things. I need for you to change your name, change it to a name that when someone calls you, you will respond. So my safe name is Millie. They brought me different clothes. They said, and the third thing is you're going to have to disconnect from everybody that you know because this man is trying to kill you and no one can know where you're going. So I severed all ties with everybody, including my mother. They put me in, uh, took me to a shelter, and that's where I was for eight months. Nobody Mm. could know where I was. Now, when you was in the shelter, did did you receive services in terms of mental health in terms of counseling? I did. I received counseling, but I also um, was watching TV, and there was a commercial that came on, Professional Career Development Institute, the online courses. They were just starting at that time, too. And at Mm -hmm. that time, the courses were $5 to start. So I sent off a paralegal courses, and I was taking paralegal courses in the shelter making straight A's. The YWCA Mm. found out about it, asked me to work in their legal department. They would come and pick me up at 3 o'clock in the morning when it was dark. I was in disguise in order to go and help other women who were victims of domestic violence to get restraining orders and to go to court. I was dressed in a disguise when I was asked to go to court with them, to stand up with them. So while I'm in the courthouse, I'm thinking I need to get my own paperwork straight. So I got my divorce October 6th of 2000. I got a writ of habeas corpus that states that anywhere they found my children, they needed to pick them up and bring them back to me. Washington State had just passed a law stating that if you are a victim of domestic violence, you can leave the state without being charged with kidnapping, and you do not have to tell the abuser where you're going. So I had all my paperwork straight. My sister called in Maryland, said that my mother was sick, and could I come and help? I told her I have not found my children, but I can wait over there. So I came to Maryland and and called the FBI, told them that my children were no longer in the country. They sent out an agent, Agent Jensen Jordan. I explained to him everything that was going on. He said, well, how do you know your children are not in the country? I said, well, my cousin is a private investigator. He said that when the trail runs cold, that means that the people you're looking for are no longer in the country. He said, okay, Ms. Muhammad, he took all my paperwork, my writ of habeas corpus, divorce decree, pictures of Johnny and our children. He said, we'll be in touch. Two weeks later, my paperwork came back in the mail with a letter. And they said, I'm sorry, we can't help you. We're going to refer you back to the FBI agency in Seattle. 
Mm-hmm. Gave me a number to call, and I called him. And that's when he said, I said, um, I'm, I need your help to find my children. My ex-husband is looking for me. He's, he's going to... I'm in hiding, and I need your help. He said, well, since we know he's looking for you, what we want to do is put put you in the middle of a parking lot and use you as a decoy. This way we can lure him out. I said, excuse me, it's going to be a headshot. You're not going to know which way the bullet is coming from. He said, we're just trying to help you out. So I hung up the phone. But August the 30th is when I got a call from the executive director saying that they found my children. I needed to fax all of my paperwork to Detective McCarthy. The next day he called and said, Ms. Muhammad, we found your children, but you have to come back for an emergency custody hearing. I fly back to Tacoma for an emergency custody hearing. Yes, sir. I was going to say, where where did they find your children at? They found them at a shelter in Tacoma. He went to um, social services to apply for food stamps and cash. Well, he needed to give them our children's real names because he changed their names. Mm-hmm. And when he gave them their real names, it flagged in their system because I already mm-hmm. had them in there for being taken by him. So right. the social worker said, uh, you've been approved for food stamps and cash, but you need to come back tomorrow to pick them up. That's when that social worker called the police and said, we got a situation. Mm-hmm. And that's when they went and picked the children up and put them in child protective services until I came back to Tacoma to have an emergency custody hearing, which he tried to attack me in the courthouse. But we were able to get away, get the children, and come back to the D.C. area. Fast forward to the shootings, that's when everything started to happen in 2002. Right, right. Wow. Now, tell we in 2002, and it wasn't a... Uh, I don't know if it was nine month period or a year period in which he was uh, involved with. It was a year, and mm-hmm. uh, in that time frame, I think it was Maryland, Virginia, D.C. That whole um, uh, tri-state three, area, tri-state yes, area, and mm-hmm. I, you know, from what I remember, because it was traumatic. I, I would turn on the radio, I would watch the TV, and. And I was wondering just how, which way this thing is going, you know, because we always, we, when we see things like this, we have to know that there's a sign in it. So nonetheless, after, what is it, I think it was 17 people being killed and uh, a host of people being injured, um, he finally gets caught. Talk, talk to mm-hmm. us about that and tell, tell us when did you know that he was behind the shootings. Um, how did you October know? October 23rd, mm-hmm. the FBI and um, ATF knocked on my door, stating, asking me what's the last time I seen him. I said September of 2001 at an emergency custody hearing. They asked me to come down to the police station to answer some questions. When I got down there, they said that um, that's when they told me that they're going to name him as the sniper, and mm-hmm. did you know that you were the target? Mm. So why would I think that? Say, so, well, he shot a man six times down the street from you. He shot another man in the abdomen two miles away from you. Miss Muhammad, you were the target. 
the theory was he was killing innocent people to cover up my murder so that he can come in as the grieving father and get custody of the children. So it was a domestic violence child custody issue. Then they asked me, would I, did I want to go into protective custody? Um, I told them yes. Um, then we had to go get my children and my sister and brother-in-law. They put us in protective custody until they caught him. They didn't tell the public that I was the target. So they let people think that I was the one going out saying I was the target without any authorization or without any uh, knowledge that that was true. But now they're saying, 15 years later, they're saying, yes, she was the target. But they told me right at that point. Didn't tell anybody else. Right, because uh, as I can recall, uh, we didn't know that you were the target. It wasn't public notice. Right. It wasn't. It wasn't public knowledge. But right, you that put a new, uh, how can I say, a new, new heights on the level of fear that you must have been uh, dealing with at that point. To know that I was because now I'm dealing with the the community because they're saying. Well, if you know, if you just would have stayed with him, he just would have killed you. If you would have stayed on the West Coast, then people on the East Coast would still be alive. How dare you call you and your children victims when none of you were killed? And how dare you bring this drama into our quiet community? I didn't, I I was, victim blaming was in the highest level for me. Nobody came to my rescue. I, I, all I had was a law because I didn't have anybody to talk to. I journaled. I didn't have anybody to to hear my cry. Allah heard my cry. I, I my faith increased. I I I, I just I well, nobody just should have to go through that and not have someone to talk to. I mean, when I tell you that I was that I was blamed for everything. Even when they caught John, the detective said to me, Miss Muhammad, you know, we asked John, why did he do this? Do you know what he said? I said, no, sir. He said, it's Mildred's fault. He said, what did Mm -hmm. you do? I said, all I did was ask him for a divorce. He said, well, he blames you. So I have no idea why. And everybody took, again, his word. She must have did something. Did you have the food cooked when he came home? Did, were the children clean? Victim blaming. Every, you should have taken better care of him. You should have had his back. He's a grown man. Can you hold him accountable for his own actions? I have to be held accountable for him when I was in hiding for two years running for my life? Am I supposed to be held accountable because he made a conscious decision to kill innocent people? Is that my fault? No, it is not. And I will not be held accountable for someone else's actions. Mm. Neither will my children. So you are being crucified for a deed that From you didn't everywhere. do. From everywhere. Yeah. Nowhere. All- I, was, I was guilty by association. It's almost unbelievable. It's unbelievable that people could have that attitude when this is something mm-hmm. that you could not control, and, nothing, and this is something that you could not predict. 
nor could anyone else predict that would happen. You, you hear what I'm saying? And so whether yes, they were friends or casual uh, acquaintances, neighbors, or family members, of course, strangers will have opinions as well. But we normally don't hear mm-hmm. strangers' opinions unless it's um, via the Internet or so, you know. Right. But mm-hmm. I, it, it's crazy because I had heard um, a, the strangest thing, like you um, said something to the police. It was you that turned him over to the police. I said, how is that? She didn't no. even know where he was. Why would at. I do that? The, He's the first question you. that I'm always asked is, did you know? So are you implying that I knew and I didn't tell anybody? Is that what you're implying? Mm. So why would you ask me, did I know? When I was in hiding for two years, I knew nothing about where he was or what he was doing for two years. He shows up, people looking around for a sniper in a white box truck. That's what they tell us, two Caucasians in a white box truck. That's what everybody's looking for. Mm-hmm. I didn't think it was John. Never even didn't think he would even escalate to that point. I knew he was going to kill me. I knew it was going to be a headshot. I knew it was going to be a shot coming from a distance. That's why every time before I went to work, I would check the rooftops. I would check everywhere. People wanted to bring me home from work. I said, no, I didn't want nobody else's blood on my hands in case they got killed trying to help me. Mm-hmm. So, so you I knew kept his people capability. away from me. Oh, Mm -hmm. absolutely. He was an expert shot. Mm -hmm. He didn't miss. Mm -hmm. He said what he meant, and he meant what he said. There was no room for uh, casual talk. Man said he's going to kill you. Guess what? He's going to kill you. Mm -hmm. A man of his word, right? A man of his word. So why wouldn't I believe him? Oh, well, you just over-dramatized. Okay, well, you crazy, because I know who I'm dealing with. You don't yes. know who you're yes. dealing with. Yes. So when a, when a victim comes to you telling you about her abuser, she knows who she's dealing with. Don't try mm. to doubt her or cause her to have doubt with the person that's been abusing her. She lives there. Yes. Who knows better? Mm-hmm. Just because you know Dr. Jekyll, you haven't met Mr. Mr. Hyde. Come on. Now, Mildred, let me ask you. The pro- uh, at this point, you're about to get your children back, or you get, you get your children back because of the custody thing mm-hmm. back in, in Washington. Um, the moments that you begin spending with them, finally with, with them after 18 months of them being um, taken from you, what was that like, um, getting to know They didn't even know they were kidnapped. He told mm. them that they were on vacation and that I was coming. So they mm. thought I abandoned them. Mm. I showed okay. them the website, the 1-800 number, the, the call logs. I showed them everything that I did to try to find them. And that's when it clicked that they were kidnapped. They say you can't kidnap your own children. When you take children from another parent, they call it custodial yes. interference because it's family court. But if it was outside of family court, it will be called kidnapping. Mm-hmm. Same so if you're thing. taking your children away from a parent, why would you do that? 
that Mm -hmm. you don't love your children when you do that to another parent. I did not then, nor do I now, speak badly to my children about their dad. Never did. Now we we understand because while they were with him, he was trying to win over them in your absence. Right, but he turned my son, he turned our son against me. My son hated me, hated, hated. He couldn't Mm -hmm. stand the way I talked anything. Finally, I said, look, tell me what's going on. I don't want to tell you because it's going to hurt your feelings. I said, no, I'm a big girl. I can take it. He said, well, dad said you didn't want me. He said, you love the girls more than me. He said, you wanted him to take us because you wanted to live the rest of your life without us. I said, I looked for all three of you and you, I knew he would work on the worst because he was jealous of me and your relationship. I said, but I'm going to ask you to do this because I don't know how deep the things that your dad has said has gone into your spirit. So I'm going to ask you to measure what I do with what he said. If you find that I'm doing something that he said I do, talk to me so you can understand why I do those things. And if you find that there's some falsehood in what he said, talk to me so that I can help you to understand that falsehood. Because the only way we're going to get through this is with the truth. And I will Mm -hmm. tell you the truth, even if it makes me look bad, because that's the only way we're going to get out of this emotionally balanced. I cannot have you guys growing up with emotionally unbalanced. I need for you to be emotionally well adults. And the only way we're going to do this is to do this in truth. Even if it makes me look bad, I will tell you the truth about me and your dad. I promise. And that's how we made it up. Now my daughter sings classical music in eight different languages. My son is an assistant manager at a diamond store. And we're all doing good. And they they can talk about their emotions. They can express how they feel about their dad. Sometimes they say, Mom, I miss dad. I say, I know. I don't say, but you ain't got no business missing your dad. You know what he tried to do? I don't do any of that. Mm. I don't do any of that. Well, talk to us about how it was that you was able to overcome that trauma um, in terms I know you're a faithful woman, and and just listening to you talk, I could hear – um, some t- strong teaching that deals with truth because truth uh, is the reveal of all things. And you wanted to make sure that your children knew how much you loved them and how much you cared. And mm-hmm. you wanted them to, um, to, to come out of this trauma whole. How did you go about doing that? I went to the library. I got a book on counseling and I learned how to counsel me and my children myself. I set up boundaries. I told them that we're going to talk about how we feel, but none of you can judge or reject what the other person is feeling. We're going to respect each other's feelings. We're going to identify those emotions. We're going to look them up, find the one that resonates with your spirit, and then that's how we're going to deal with this because we cannot move forward without understanding what we're feeling and you cannot 
use your dad as an excuse for failure. That's mm. not going to happen. You got to give me something else as to why you can't do better than what you did before. Not so having it. Failure wasn't even an option. Not what? an option. Giving up, not an option. Mm-hmm. No, those know, options were off the table. You know, when they were conceived with the right intentions, they were born from uh, spiritual spiritual parents. I take it at the time that both of you were together conceiving the children, that there was a spirituality in the home. Absolutely. You know, yes, sir. From the very beginning. Mm-hmm. And so this is why. From the very you beginning. Have, so this is why you were able to have the foundation to figure out how to heal and how to grow, you know, and mm-hmm. how to blossom. In the case of your children, how to blossom. And even you um, have uh, evolved into a, a, a level of, uh, how can I say it, um, uh, to a, a whole other spiritual level that you're now giving off healing to others through your talks and uh, just your, your mere presence. You could, there's something special about you. Not that it wasn't special before, mm-hmm. but these circumstances that you endured has brought out the worst and now the best in you. So there's a lesson in this for those of you who are listening that even though you may be going through something in life, God has a plan for you. And if you just could stay faithful and know that that he can bring you through it, that he is all that you need, he is sufficient for you. When you didn't have a friend, you didn't have someone to talk to, when you when you when you opened up and prayed to God, he was listening and he brought you through this. And this is a lesson that we all can learn. Because a lot of folks believe that they're alone. I remember reading in the Quran when I was in the shelter where Jacob, I studied Jacob and Hagar. Mm-hmm. Jacob uh, was talking to his sons or his sons were talking to him and he, they asked him why was he always crying over Joseph because Joseph was missing. Mm-hmm. But the sons knew where he was. Same thing I was going through. And that scripture said, Jacob said, I complain only to Allah. And just that right there told me to stop telling everybody, stop crying and complaining to other people because they don't care. (laughs) Mm. They can't change anything. Go Mm. to the one who can. And so I began praying and fasting, talking to Allah, thanking him for everything that he has done and continues to do asking him to put a hedge of protection around my children wherever they are to protect them from harm seen and unseen and that the Mm. angels that he has assigned to us will be there to protect them because in Psalms 91 it says that angels are assigned to us. So I was asking him to release those angels and that's Mm. what I still do. Mm. So the essence of all Because only God can change Right, because the only one who can change everything was God. That's right. So I can and complain I, to you, I can talk to you, but you're limited. Yes. But when I ask God, because it says you have not because you ask not. So I mm-hmm. asked, and he gave. I asked him to put people and resources in place to help me, and he did. Wasn't the people that I thought would be there. 
Mm. So I had to be open to whoever he would send to help me. I couldn't pick and choose who was going to help me. Mm-hmm. I had to be open to he, who he sent to me. That's to, right. To help me. That's right. Well, I'm glad you're saying it because now, although we open in the emotional key, we're actually talking about the spiritual key because it is spiritual that all things lie. And um, mm-hmm. at the Keys 107, we say that we open doors to endless possibilities in the pursuit of love, peace, and happiness. And that is because most people lack love. They don't find it. They don't have peace in their life. And uh, happiness is very evasive to them. And so when we bring people on the show like yourself who can talk about the darkness of life, but how God has opened doors for you to become whole again, opened doors for your children to be shining stars among us because they're, they're in faith. If you have faith, God will bless you to see the rewards that he has in store for you. And so I believe that you're still on a journey that's going to take you to higher heights. And I just want to let you know that my wife and I are here for you as support and um, anything that we can do to help you with your, your ministry, because your ministry for domestic violence is much needed. Uh, uh, I don't think we, we, uh, we as a nation of people, or are in tune with what's really going on behind closed doors in, in our community, but we need to make awareness, uh, more awareness in our community that domestic violence cannot be tolerated, and, and those who are underneath its um, harshness should know that they're the victim, and they shouldn't be blamed for how they are being treated. We need to be there for them. So we we, we, we so much love what we're hearing from you. Um, and be careful which way you point your faith because faith works in a positive way, but it also works in the negative. That's so if, you, if you're looking to, to um, get out of your situation, you need to talk in words of encouragement. You have to remember it in Ephesians 2 where God said that he created us to be a masterpiece. So you have to walk in that. Wherever you you point your faith to negativity, then it's going to grow. Your faith is going to grow in negativity. So be careful which way you point your faith. Very well said. Very well said. Now, I want to say to you that um, because you've been through much, is there one thing that you would share to a victim? No, well, first of all, the bystander because I I don't think we touched on it, the bystander, the one who is watching someone going through uh, these circumstances, is there one thing that you can give them as guidance to be able to be a better helper to that person who is the victim of domestic violence? Yes. Oftentimes we know someone that's in an abusive relationship, and the first thing or the first inkling we say, to them is, why don't you just leave? Why do you stay there? Because you don't know the circumstances behind that person staying there, that's not the best response to make. So check your boundaries. Find out what you will do, what you won't do, what you can't do. Will you give this person money? Can they come and stay with you? Are you willing to 
to help them in that way. That's how you set your boundaries. Then you take this person to lunch, not dinner, because dinner time is checked. Always a timeline and where they should be at a certain time. So you take Mm -hmm. them to lunch. Once you get to lunch, because you already know this person is in an abusive relationship, then you ask, how can I help you? Don't ask what's going on, because you already know what's going on. You're wasting time. So ask, how can I help you? And you don't say anything else. Don't say, I can do A, B, C, and D, because now you're sounding like the abuser. You're still telling them what to do. What you're trying to do is empower this person because you may be the only one that is asking the question of how can I help you versus this is what you need to do. Once they make their petition, because first they may look at you because no one's ever asked that question before, and you actually want to hear what I have to say because every victim knows what they need. We never ask the question of how can I help you. Once the person tells you, then you can make make the decision on how far your help can go. Then at that point, if you feel you can't do anything, then give them this website, domesticshelters.org, domesticshelters, with an S, dot org. Because when you go to that link, you can put in your city and state and all the resources will come up for that area. This is a new link, a couple of years, but it's been very helpful to victims and survivors all over the nation. And you've just saved a life. You didn't yes. put yourself in harm's way, gave them the information, and you knew what you could and you couldn't do. But you can't leave people out in the in the wilderness crying for help. Yes. I know what that feels like. You can't have them like Hagar running to and fro between the mountains trying to find somebody to help. You can't leave people out there like that. Yes. You're not supposed to leave people out there like that. So I thank you for giving that word to the onlookers, the, the, the uh, folks who are observing these things. Now, what about that one who's listening right now who is actually in, in a domestic uh, violent um, relationship, what could you say to that person? What would you like to say? Well, first of all, the abuse is not your fault. Sometimes that's, that's hard to believe when all you're hearing is, if it wasn't for you, I wouldn't be doing this, or you are making me do this. You are not accountable and you cannot hold yourself accountable for someone else's actions. You have to, this is what I would advise, because sometimes you're in an abusive relationship and people don't know it. 80% of victims don't have physical scars to prove that they're victims. So get a sheet of paper. Draw a line down the middle. Pros on one side, cons on the other. Separate your emotions from the actual facts. Because when you try to make a decision with emotions, you will later regret it. So separate those emotions. So how do you do that? As you're listing in the pros and cons, don't make excuses for the behavior. Just write it down. Once you pros and cons, you get to the the end of the paper, 
If there are more pros than cons, then look at the cons and see what you can work on to make the relationship better. But if there are more cons than pros, then you have a decision to make. No one has that decision to make but you. Whether you choose to stay or leave, it's your choice. But if you decide to leave, then you have to have a plan. On my website, MildredMuhammad.com, there's a, I have a plan. It's called Planning My Escape, Eight Steps to Leave in an Abusive Relationship. Say it again, Mildred. On my website, MildredMuhammad.com, there's a safety plan called Planning My Escape. It's eight steps to leaving an abusive relationship. So you fill out this plan. You don't take this book home. You leave it at work or you give it to one trusted friend. You start to put money aside on a Walmart card. Have money going to that card because you can't track it. Get an extra phone so that you're able to communicate with other people without having it to be on your main phone, especially if the phone is on one uh, bill. Because now you're planning your escape. And then be strategic in how you're leaving. The one thing that you have, you cannot give up when you're in an abusive relationship and you're trying to leave. That is the element of surprise. Don't put your abuse on the social media. Don't tell people what you're planning to do. Just because your abuser don't have access to your page or your network doesn't mean their friends and family don't. So you think you're being clever by putting it on social media because he or she can't see it. Someone else sees it that knows this person and they're going to know. So you've just lost your element of surprise. You have to be strategic because nowadays people are killing each other for nothing. Yes. Yes. Every day someone is killed in domestic violence and, and it's, it's beyond an epidemic. We're losing so many people and we don't have to. Right. People don't know how to walk away anymore. Frustrations and disappointments. If I can't have you, can't nobody have you. That's the attitude today. Yes. That was John's attitude. You have become my enemy, and as my enemy, I will kill you. I will fix it to where no one else will ever want you again. Mm-hmm. That's what he said. Well, what a gripping, gripping story. Um, for those of you out there, uh, who are listening via the internet, you know that if you wanted to talk directly to uh, Mildred uh, Mahab, you have to dial in, call in 213-943-3618 and hit any key on the keypad and we'll, we'll uh, address your comment or your concern. It has been an absolute journey. I have learned a lot from this conversation of ours and I know that you uh, you do speaking engagements. Tell us um, right. how do people go about contacting you or connecting with you to to bring you forward uh, for a speaking engagement? Well, you can go to my website, mojamahamad.com, and click on contact me, and mm-hmm. we, and send in your request that way. Because okay. I also speak on uh, military bases regarding PTSD and suicide. 23 soldiers a day commit suicide. 23. And that's a number. Soldiers a day. 
anyone to talk to anymore about our frustrations. Exactly. Exactly. And I think a lot of times try to self-medicate to deal with what mm-hmm. what's going on internally, which really makes it worse off. And we don't, like you said, don't want to be stigmatized being classified um, as someone with an emotional disorder or a mental uh, disability of some sort. So we will right. disguise it with with drugs and alcohol, and uh, hopefully no one ever would ever notice that we got an issue or problem, you know. Right. And uh, I, I, I can, I, I understand. I remember, and I'll just say this, um, and this was back in the '60s when Vietnam was going, was just uh, actually uh, shutting down. I was a young fella, and I remember my dad and his buddies when the young fellas came back home. They would have um, what did they call it? Uh, they they would have, would have sit downs with these young men to help them to deal with the issues of being away at war. You know, excuse me, mm-hmm. they call them sessions. And my house in the basement of my house was one of those designated areas where they would come down there. And I remember sitting down, listening to uh, the young guys coming back from the war talking to my dad and their friends and all these grown men would break out and start crying. And I had never seen mm-hmm. men cry before, but, and I really didn't understand what was going on, but they were sharing in his experience and whatever he experienced was so devastating that were absorbed in it, but he had them to help get the, get his life together. You know what I mean? And I, I've seen this several incidents where it helped. Now, these same young men, where my father and the older men were not around, became my big brothers and saviors in the street because they had a connection with me based upon my father and his crew working with them on an emotional and mental and spiritual level that, um, that allowed them to, to, to readjust into society. We don't have that today. Uh, where the community mm-hmm. comes together to work with people coming back from the war. But again, in my community, there was no mental health centers that you could go and talk about. Uh, I got a problem. I just came back from Nam. There, there was nothing there. And it's a shame. Right. Yeah. Well, sister, I'm not going to hold you any further because I know that you have spoken from the depths of your heart and you have been very clear on your position on on uh, not blaming the victim and to have spent this amount of time talking about something so personal. I know you're going to have some time that need to sit down and let let your spirit settle because I guess every time you do have this kind of conversation and you relive um, part of that pain. And I, and I can tell you, you don't, I don't No, I don't. I'm completely healed. I don't have any uh, flashbacks, no nightmares, none of that. I'm done. That's a beautiful thing. Allah healed me from everything, and I can talk about my story and go on and live my life. Beautiful. When I smile, I'm smiling because I'm happy. I'm not smiling to cover up pain. Beautiful, beautiful. So we're just thankful that we're able to share your story 
And we want everyone to go to your website. That's MildredMuhammad.com. Also, if you're mm-hmm. in trouble or you know someone that is in trouble with domestic or violence, the domestic uh, shelters with the F dot org. Um, right. If you're planning your escape, is it planning your escape? You can find that. Planning my escape. Planning my escape. You can find that again at MildredMuhammad.com. And so we thank right. you from the bottom of our hearts, Sister Mildred. If there's one thing that you want to leave with our audience, this is the time to do it. And uh, because we're coming to that hour in which we have to conclude our uh, our talk. So, you know, you have to encourage yourself. You have to speak big life into yourself. You look in the mirror and say to yourself, I am, this is what I do. I say, I am Mildred Muhammad in all of what that entails. And I'm proud of me. That's right. If nobody else is proud of me, I'm proud of me. If nobody else loves me, I love me. Because in the Quran, Allah says he's as close to you as your juggler vein. And that's that vein that's right in your neck. So I'm never alone. And that's how I look at it. I'm never alone. I'm not. So you're never alone. God is always with you. Ask and you shall receive. You need help, ask him for help. And what I did was I asked him to put a word in that person's mouth so that I would know when they spoke it that he sent them. Not just anybody, because anybody can say anything. But knowing that the words that they speak resonates with your spirit, then you know that person came from God. That's right. So don't, don't take on behaviors that's not yours. Break through listening to your abuser. I journaled. I had to get it out of my head onto paper because if you don't see your pain, then your pain does not exist because we are visual people. Once you see your pain on the paper, you know what you got to work with. You know what you got to go through. You got to see your pain to know you're in pain. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. And I think I'll just add to something you said earlier. Know who you're talking to. You don't have to talk to everybody. Just know Mm-mm. the person that you're talking to has a genuine interest in helping you. Even if they don't know how to help you, they're interested in helping you. You know what I mean? They're not going right. to discount your your feelings and your emotions. You know? Right. So we want to thank you once again, and may God be with you forever. And may he also shower his blessings on your children and um Hopefully we'll get an opportunity to meet in person at some point. My family would love to be able to just break bread with you and um, just tell you how much we appreciate that you are you are standing, that you're still standing after the trauma mm-hmm. of the D.C. sniper. Yes, so, sir. So at that point, we're going to conclude. All right. And um, I missed my partner today because she is with the family, my son who definitely wanted to have had some input into this conversation. And I know she will be listening in. If she can't talk, she's probably listening in. Um, But um, at some point she'll reach back out to you and have a conversation. Thank you, uh, uh, Sister Mildred Muhammad. May God be with you forever. You too, sir. Thank you. You're welcome. You've been listening to the Keys 107, folks. Uh, Another uh, outstanding show. And, um, Come back next week where we will have a, a, a show that will deal with 
the entertainment area, and um, we'll make an announcement with that soon. With that, we're going to be closing out. We'll be right back with the Keys 107. Now, 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 back to the Keys 107 with your hosts, Wafika and Brother Jay. This week's uh, episode definitely was hitting the emotional key, folks, and we want you to send us information. If you if you know someone who used some of this information that we share with you today, contact Sister Mildred Muhammad, or just send a note to us via the our Facebook page, our Facebook group, email us, whatever. We want to make sure that this particular episode is being used to help people get out of a bad situation, and become whole again. So with that, we want to say to you, good night and be well from the Keys 107 family. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.